0: Okay, welcome to the Orthoclips podcast series. I'm Sakya Brahman, and today I'm with Dr. Yelena Bogdan, and we're going to be talking about atypical femur fractures. So let's just get into it. Uh, Dr. Bogdan, thanks for being with me.
1: Thank you very much for having me. I'm very uh, happy to talk about this relatively obscure but very fun topic.
0: Yeah, and I know that uh, you have a lot of interest and expertise, so I think our listeners will appreciate that. So maybe we can start right in and have you briefly describe what are atypical femur fractures. What does that mean? Uh, maybe a little bit of background.
1: Yeah, so um, so inevitably the term atypical femur fractures is uh, related to bisphosphonates since that's what most people associate them with and that's one of the first misconceptions that I want to break up um, because uh, the uh, Term you know, the term bisphosphonate femur fracture. It's not always associated with bisphosphonates. In fact, there are um, femur fractures that look exactly like um, these uh, atypicals, uh, it, and they occur in patients who have other bone disorders and who have never been on bisphosphonates. Um, likewise, there are people on bisphosphonates who never get fractures. But um, it is the most um, commonly cited link. But for the purposes of this talk, let's just call them atypicals. And so um, the background kind of kind of is is pretty simple. Um, you know for the scourge of osteoporosis bisphosphonates are um, now becoming very widely used and uh, they were used uh, for a while and then um, especially out of Asia people started uh, having um, these uh, very strange uh, looking femur fractures that would occur from a uh, very uh, low energy uh, trauma and they were primarily sub and I'll kind of uh, explain why um, in a little bit later but um, they uh, they didn't look like a very typical subtrochanteric femur fractures they were occurring in uh, young individuals than the uh, typical hip fractures would be and they uh, had a very specific appearance they looked like uh, like they were chalk stick type of fractures they looked like they just broke in half and uh, most importantly sometimes they occurred without any trauma at all and uh, the connection was made pretty early on the first case reports came out in 2005 and it became a big issue in the lay press because people started saying oh my god these um, bisphosphonates are doing something to the bones and you're going to have a broken femur and there was like this big hullabaloo about it. Um, Well, I I don't think anybody should be panicking, um, and I'll kind of talk about that a little bit, but there is certainly a connection there so at their um at their most basic atypical femur fractures are a subtype of an insufficiency fracture so it's basically uh, an insufficiency fracture is a stress fracture that occurs in abnormal bones there's something unusual going on inside the bone either as a result of the bisphosphonates or as a result of a bone disorder but the normal remodeling process is um is somehow altered and that causes uh, these fractures to occur Um, so as I said, they're associated with bisphosphonates, and that is the largest risk factor, particularly with alendronate, um, which is also known as Fosimex, uh first of all because it's very commonly used in the United States, and second because it has the longest half-life out of all the bisphosphonates, so it can stay in the body for years. And uh, the connection between uh, bisphosphonates and atypical femur fractures is actually stronger than the link between smoking and lung cancer. So in at least one study, the odds ratio was 139, so for occurring if you were... Um, on bisphosphonates versus, um, versus if you were not. Um, so, uh, and in terms of uh, what they are specifically, if you want me to go into kind of like how to diagnose them or what types of patients get them, generally they're going to be a little bit younger by about a decade than your standard hip fracture. They tend to be female um, also because um, females are more likely to be treated and to get osteoporosis. Um, and uh, usually there's minimal to no trauma. So sometimes they could just be standing and turned funny and their leg will snap and then they fall they um, have prodromal pain not all the time but much of the time so depending on what you read about 30 to 77 percent of the time they're going to have some kind of pain and it doesn't have to be just in the area of the hip it can be in the knee it can even uh, radiate to the back so um, a lot of these things are missed early on until they fracture because people think it's coming from something else and uh, a lot of the time they're going to have contralateral findings as well so one of the most important things I want to impart is that. you want to make sure that you check the contralateral side and then in terms of how to diagnose them there's a very specific radiographic pattern on um, the American Society of um, bone and mineral research released a list of criteria so there's five major criteria there's a couple of minor criteria which I won't get into but the four out of five must be present in order for it to be diagnosed so the five of them are minimal to no trauma the fracture has to start on the lateral side and it's got to be predominantly transverse so what I mean is on the lateral cortex, it has to be basically 90 degrees, and that's been studied. So the fracture line has to be completely straight laterally. If it's not, then it is not a bisphosphonate fracture, or it's not an atypical fracture. Um, With a complete fracture, it has to involve both cortices and might have a medial spike. And with an incomplete fracture, it has to start laterally. If it starts medially and there's nothing laterally, again, not an atypical fracture. So that's... um, So that's one of the criteria. And then um, uh, the the next one is that it has to be non-comminuted or minimally comminuted. Um, And the last one is that there has to be local thickening of the lateral cortex, not the whole bone, just the lateral side. So those are the five criteria. Minimal trauma originating laterally. Complete has to involve both. And uh, incomplete has to only involve the lateral, non-comminuted, and local thickening. So, if you have four out of five of those, it's uh, pretty. Um, it, you can be pretty certain that this is an atypical fracture.
0: It's a great overview. I think uh, that really uh, is going to help the listeners uh, understand and you know, make sure they don't miss one, mm-hmm. and uh, that there are more than one uh, criteria. I mean, so, now that it's been ten to fifteen years um, that. Since we first recognize these. Uh, where are we at, uh, at least with regards to our published literature? What does the data suggest? Or maybe are there any kind of clear, um, you know, are there any clear recommendations uh, from the data with regard to best uh, management practices with things like surgical technique, um, aftercare, maybe with regards to. Uh, um, practice yes. prevention, because they're all medications already in they product And then also you mentioned contralateral side surveillance. So what is the literature telling us?
1: Yeah, so, um, so there, there's a couple of questions that you asked, and I think they're all super important, so I'm kind of going to try and answer them um, one by one. So um, first of all, in terms of uh, treating these fractures and managing them, if you happen to find one before uh, it completely, so a lot of the time we don't get to these people until they, fracture and they come to the emergency department but sometimes we'll be lucky and they'll present to us um, before they fracture so they'll have a radiographic findings um, on their x-ray or um sometimes people will get an mri or a bone scan and something will look funny and they'll send them to the orthopedic surgeon so first of all what do you do if it's not complete and they haven't um they haven't uh, fractured yet so um is there a role for non operative management um the answer is yes but um most data will suggest that if they have pain um that um it's uh, much better to prophylactically treat them and do prophylactic surgery because the outcomes are much better um, with prophylaxis rather than trying to treat them non-operatively and then when they fracture, um, uh, trying to treat them after that. But there are certain factors in which you may want to treat them non-operatively. If you have a very compliant patient who can stay off of their leg for up to three months um, because no one quite knows how long to keep them non-weight bearing for, it's basically until the pain goes away. If the findings are minimal, if there's you know basically nothing on the x-ray and maybe they have a little bit of edema on their MRI um, then um, then it's uh, not uh, unreasonable to try and treat them non-operatively if they don't have what's called a dreaded black line so if you see on the x-ray or on the CAT scan um, you see that a transverse line in the lateral cortex particularly in the subtrochanteric region because the forces there um, the tensile forces are very very strong so if you don't see a dreaded black line then it's reasonable to try a trial of non-operative management but because these are so rare and you know that's one of the things I want to kind of emphasize you know that that there's a panic over them but the the, you know the the majority of um, people who are treated with the phosphonates never get anything close to that so these are um, still extremely rare and most um, most people will never get this complication that's why it's very hard for us to really understand these fractures because there's just not that many of them Um, so it's hard to know what to do with them so there is no real standardized protocol for how long you keep the non-weight bearing what do you put them on you know things like that but what we do know is that if they have persistent pain or and sometimes they they can't be compliant. They say, "Listen, I've had patients who say, Listen, I I go to the gym every day. There is no way I can be off my leg for three months. Just fix me.' And and I have. Um, but if you're going to do it uh, non-operatively, you protect their weight-bearing usually for about two to three months. You discontinue bisphosphonates obviously, but just discontinuing bisphosphonates um, may not be enough because bisphosphonates stay in the body for many many years. Um, so so that in itself uh, might not be the only thing that you have to do. You you know, send them to the endocrinologist, make sure you don't have something else, and then Forteo is still very controversial, um, even though a lot of people use it. But like I said, the outcomes for non-operative management are not that great. They have a high risk of fracture progression, depending on what you read, anywhere from 40 to 85%. And they do have to, they tend to have a longer length of stay if let's say you treat them prophylactically and it's basically just like fixing a sawbone versus waiting for them to break, then you have a bigger problem. So, um, and they also have um, a lot of the time they'll have persistent pain until you fix them prophylactically. Um, And then for treating them prophylactically, obviously, if they have that dreaded black line I talked about, if they have intractable pain, if they have a large femoral bow, so usually this happens in the Asian population. And I think personally, that's why these reports first came out of Asia, because um, the bow is slightly larger and the patient's um, skeleton is a little bit differently shaped, particularly in women. They also have a bigger, um, they have a bigger coronal bow. So if you have a very bowed femur with a dreaded black line, I would say prophylactically fix that because that's going to break. And if they fail, conservative management, and also if that's uh, the patient choice. So that's kind of like how you make your decision. And then in terms of how to fix it, um, the mainstay I will say is uh, cephalomedullary nailing. Um, there are some people who believe that these fractures should be treated the way non-unions are treated, so they'll compress the heck out of them and they'll plate them, but plates have a slightly higher um, complication rate. So I think the first thing, um, the first line of defense or the first line of treatment, and certainly in prophylaxis, but definitely for treatment as well, um, is cephalomedullary nailing. So um, when you do it, there's a couple of points. Number one, always do a long nail and always protect the neck. So don't, even if these things occur in the shaft, and they can occur anywhere in the femur, they don't have to occur in just the subtrochanteric area, because it really depends on where the tensile forces are the strongest. And so the bigger your femoral bow, actually, the more distal the fracture is going to be. So you can see them in the shaft. You can either even see them closer toward the distal femur so um, don't be tempted to do a retrograde nail and leave the neck unprotected because I have seen femoral neck fractures occur afterwards so um, just protect the entire thing long cephalomedullary nail If the patient has a very large coronal bow, there are special nails made for that, so pay attention to the radius of curvature of your nail. There are special um, smaller nails um, made for these patients, Um, particularly in certain parts of the world. There is a special nail called the cirrus nail, um, which is spelled S-I-R-U-S, which is a little bit, um, which has just has a... a, um, a, a just a higher curve to it um, so it's, it's just a little bit more curved um, and so if you have a very um, large bow you want to be careful to make sure that when you're putting a straight nail down you don't perforate um, and then as in terms of the technique um, that's the other kind of most important point is that these fractures are extremely unforgiving so this is not your typical subtrochanteric fracture um, so subtrochanteric fractures I mean you put the bone anywhere in the same neighborhood and it's going to heal that is not the case with uh, atypicals. So um, there was a very good study um, by Dr. Cho, um, and I think it was in the Journal of Orthopedic Trauma, and it was called, um, you know, healing of atypical femur fractures, which factors predict union. And so, um, and and they basically found that as little as five degrees of variation in the either the coronal or the sagittal plane. So if you put it in as little as five degrees of varus, it's going to fail. Now, varus is never good anyway in any, you know, subtropenteric fracture, but these are particularly unforgiving. So you want to make them as anatomic as possible. So to that point, um, in terms of tips, surgical techniques, I open almost every one of them. If I can't get them perfect, I will open them and provisionally plate them with like a little two, four, two, seven plate and unicortical screws. And then I'll put the nail in because you want to get them as perfect as possible. You don't have to go crazy. If you can get it closed and you can get a good reduction, you don't have to open it or scrape out the, the fracture site or anything like that. There's been, there's been some, some work out there showing that that doesn't seem to work. You don't really have to bone graft it. But uh, but uh, I mean if you you can if you're opening it anyway you can scrape it out and and you know just just because you're already there Um, but you don't have to do that if you can get it closed Um, and so just get it perfect however way you can and don't distract it so try and compress it down Um, and usually when you have that um, lateral fracture line there's going to be a little bit of reabsorption because the body is just trying to absorb it um, uh, or trying to remodel that fracture site and it can't and that's what creates that dreaded black line. So even if you kind of backslap the nail and try and get compression, you'll get it on the medial side. You may still have a residual gap on the lateral side, and I wouldn't worry too much about that because you can't close that down because it's not anatomic anymore. But if you can get it closed down on the three other sides, posterior, medial, and anterior, then it's very likely to to heal. And it's got pretty good results. You know, there's a lot of talk about... and these things don't heal or they don't heal as well, they do take longer to heal. So on average, they can take as long as 11 months to heal. So people intervene early in these fractures thinking that they're going on to a non-union when in fact they're just really, really slow because the remodeling process is altered. But they actually have pretty reasonable healing rates of about 85%, so they're not as horrible as people make them out to be because the current studies that are showing that there's more revisions in these plates, if you look at these studies carefully, um, the uh the, the revisions are sometimes not for that fracture at all they're not like revisions for nonunion sometimes they're for periprosthetic fractures that occur from another fall sometimes the reasons for the revisions are unclear so it's not like it's not like they're all um it's not like they're all um, um being uh, uh, you know done for some problem that's uh, that's going on with the fracture itself um, but certainly there you have to watch them very carefully because especially if they're not anatomic they are very prone to dil- aid
0: or non-union. Okay, and you know, you kind of gave a lot of uh, practical tips. I'm sure from some experience dealing with these that I think a lot of surgeons who encounter them occasionally can probably incorporate in their practice. So I appreciate uh, you giving those tips. Now, what and what about? Other thing I
1: want to add, not oh, sorry, I, ahead, I the, on. the only other thing, like the other thing that I want to add is that uh, is that. Um, They these are not your stereotypical hip fracture patients. So they don't go to nursing homes. They um, actually this is one of uh, my studies that I did with a lot of other um, people in other centers. We had a big um, multi-center trial of these, and what we found is about 94% of them were living at home at their final follow-up. So these are young patients, um, relatively like physiologically young. They want to go home. You know they're active. These are not like uh, they, they have to be differentiated from your standard hip fracture patients so you can't really treat them um, you can't treat them the same way
0: that's a good point now I guess as my final question uh, before we finish how has the medical community responded to this now it's been you know 10 15 years you said that these are pretty rare but have uh, medical practices for Prophylactic treatment of osteoporosis changed specifically because of these atypical fractures or are things pretty much the same or just changing as they normally would with as more drugs come out and modalities of treatment?
1: I think there's a little bit more awareness of it, certainly. Now the FDA, um, now they recommend a um, drug holiday for bisphosphonates. So after about three to five years of taking them, you take a drug holiday to sort of, I think the idea is to allow to allow the drug to clear the body and, and help it not build up so much that it doesn't affect the remodeling process. But bisphosphonates are just still so incredibly effective in treating osteoporosis that they are still the first-line drugs. In fact, one of the issues with Forteo is that it's not often covered. By insurance and it's very expensive. But if you, you know, one of the sort of tricks is that, um, you know, if someone has an atypical femur fracture, by definition, they have failed bisphosphonates. So you can actually try and get the the insurance to cover Forteo because that is the second line drug. Um, but I don't think uh, I don't think there are people. I don't think people are really moving away from bisphosphonates so so much as kind of just being more aware of these things. And I think um, you know, to any medical um, colleagues that are listening, you know, if a patient starts to suddenly complain of, of thigh pain or you know just an ache anywhere in their leg um, particularly the contr you know like, like especially if it's on both sides um, certainly don't hesitate to send them to an orthopedic surgeon because that's something that if we pick it up before um, before the patient breaks the outcomes are, are so much better and I've had I've had several of these experiences where somebody just came in and and they were within um a couple of weeks they became completely wheelchair bound because they were having so much thigh pain and they couldn't understand what was going on and and fortunately their physician was was smart and 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 uh, sent them uh, to an orthopedic surgeon to try and figure it out. And they actually got sent on to me because the surgeon thought that they might have an impending atypical fracture. And sure enough, they they uh, did. And it was very distal. It was actually close to their knee replacement. And they thought that there was something wrong with the knee replacement, but it wasn't. It was um, right above that. There was um, in the distal femoral shaft, there was a little bit of a, of a change there in the cortex. And I did a prophylactic nailing and the uh, the change was incredible. I mean, literally on the, the first Day after the nailing, the patient was up and walking when they had been wheelchair bound for several weeks because of this pain. so um, if you can catch them early it's it's actually quite a quite a life changing procedure.
0: yeah, I think it's important and it can uh, sometimes not be caught early and then they come in with a fracture, but uh, you always have that opportunity even in those cases to uh, deal with the other side before it comes a problem.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And so the other side definitely should be monitored. For how long, unfortunately, no one knows because, you know, if someone, you know, goes back on dysphosphonates, you know, and and, and there's – we just don't have – the data to know that you know they're just still so rare and and uh, you know a lot of the time also they they're mistaken for something else so I'm sure they I'm sure the rates are actually probably higher than what we think but because these are not high energy injuries um, I am sure some of them are being treated kind of inadvertently as regular hip fractures by community um, hospitals and whoever you know they're not being seen in the major trauma centers because they're minimally traumatic or sometimes atraumatic so you know who knows how many of them are really out there.
0: Yeah, good point. Well, I think that's a lot of great information on an important topic. Uh, Dr. Bogdan, I want to really appreciate you taking the time to speak with me and um, thank you very much.
1: Thanks very much for having me. Thank you.